All right, if you've got your Bible or some device, you'll be looking at the Scripture with us this morning. We'll begin in Luke chapter 13. been working through Luke for most of this year, um, and we'll obviously it'll carry us into the beginning of 2023 as well. As we've um, just walked, walked through this Gospel where Luke is really just trying to show us um, an orderly account of Jesus, right? Making sure that we understand um, why there was difficulty, why there was opposition, um, but also what God's plan was, and that the opposition shouldn't be a surprise to us. Um, last year, we did not do an Advent series, per se, but we started Ecclesiastes. And if you remember that, that probably did not feel very fitting for Advent. Um, as it was a reminder um, that you're all going to die, right? It was kind of Ecclesiastes' primary theme, right? Um, this morning... Um, we're going to kind of continue that theme um, by God's providence in Luke 13 with a, a passage that maybe doesn't feel initially very Advent-ish. Um, and yet, um, we're really not trying to develop a reputation of being dark and depressing at Christmas time. But this is two years in a row, so I'm not sure <laughs> what, what to do with that. Um, so l- let me read beginning in verse 1. Of chapter 13. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Were those eighteen on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. I'm going to stop there for a moment, and now you'll understand why I made the comment about tone. Right? That Jesus' tone over this section of Luke is just, it's, it, maybe you want to use the word harsh, but it's, it's heavy. Right? There's a, a gravitas to it over the last couple chapters and continuing in chapter 13. You'll remember that Jesus is talking to the disciples, but the crowds are present. Remember, there's people even being trampled. There's so many thousands trying to get around. And so Jesus is teaching to his apostles, but there's a larger audience who are hearing, right? And so as he had, was ministering, and we saw this last week, he's teaching on some hard things and basically saying, you need to settle your accounts with God, right? Before you meet him, right? You need to make things right, and we do that right, through Jesus. And while this conversation is taking place, basically someone hollers out from the crowd, um, and and potentially this was kind of, you know, their equivalent of breaking news, right? This was probably a very recent event, and someone hollers out, you heard about what Rome did to the Galileans. Right? They were on their way to sacrifice. They were in the process of sacrificing, and they were slaughtered. Right? And not only were they slaughtered, not only did Pilate show utter disdain for human life, but then he mixed their blood that was spilt with the sacrifices that they were already making. It was disdain for religion and for, uh, and for people. Like, you heard what Pilate did, Jesus. Like, what are you going to say about that? Now listen, we don't know the motive or the intent um, behind this person. It could have simply been someone who has heard the news and they very much are wanting to hear Jesus answer and, and, and speak to this, going, 
hey, you've been saying some hard things, but the Galileans, those are your people. You don't, you're not meaning that they deserve this, right? Or potentially, it was those who were trying to spur Jesus on. They're still thinking it's going to be an earthly kingdom brought by military might, right? And they're going, maybe, maybe if he hears this atrocious, heinous thing has occurred, Jesus will stop this nonsense and we will march on Jerusalem. Or it could have been that someone's going, man, if we, if we kind of give him some, some nationalistic speech here, he may say something that will take him off of our hands and he'll become Rome's problem because we can't figure out how to deal with it. Right? Like there's, there's all sorts of things that could have been going on as the crowd is hearing this and what they're hoping that Jesus will say. But if you remember last week as we finished the last of chapter 12, he says, listen, he gives this story and he says, if you were going before the court and you owed a debt, you would be a fool not to make it right before you get there. Saying, you have a debt before God. You would be a fool not to deal with it when there's one there to deal with it. And it's me. You don't want to go before God and stand in your guilt alone without an advocate. And so this is kind of the, the setting where Jesus is now going to answer the question. And so he hears this heinous thing, and his response is a little bit shocking. And he says, do you not think those, do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the others because they suffered in this way? Why, why is he asking that question? Because at this day and age, and honestly, it is permeated and still here, that there is a tendency to want to draw a straight line from someone's sin or the amount of sin or the, um, the type of sin to their suffering, right? That we want to say, if they're suffering in that way, what did they do to deserve it? That they've done something to draw that sort of ire or attention from God, right? Like we, we, we want to do that, even if we know we shouldn't. But Scripture is far more complicated, right, in how it deals with suffering than that. It's not a simple, quick answer. We see in Scripture that there are some where there is um, suffering, and it's so that the glory of God will be revealed in that moment. There are others that their suffering is a natural consequence of living in a broken world. There are some, right, whose suffering is judgment. There are some like Job, right, where it's, he's suffering and it's revealing character and the nature of God and what matters in this life, that we see that this is a far more complicated answer. And so he brings our attention to heinous, senseless acts that happen suddenly at the hands of people. Right? You can turn on your phone or turn on your computer or the TV this morning and see any number of examples of this. Right? Some that you would go, I could see myself in that moment and it bothers you more. Others that you want to quickly draw um, a rash conclusion about what they deserved it. Right? You need an example of that last right Saturday night into Sunday morning, the club in Colorado Springs, right? Right? Like you can imagine that being the question asking being asked here. Hey, Jesus, we heard about this thing that happened. Like, did they did they deserve it? Did they not? Due to their sin? Like that's the question that's coming across. And it should make us feel uncomfortable. But to make sure that we understand that it's not just um, suffering at the hands of people, he continues. He tells them, listen, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. 
of the, and he goes in verse 4, or what about those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? This, this wall, this tower outside of a, a pool or a well on the edge of Jerusalem. Right? And there was most likely some scaffolding, some repairs being done, and it fell. It was a natural disaster, right? And it killed 18 people. He's like, do you think that God had initiated and made sure that the, the 18 worst people were there so they, they got the judgment? He's like, that they were the worst offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, he is not saying that their blood is going to be mixed with, with their sacrifices, or that they're going to have a tower fall on them. What is he saying? You too will meet an untimely end. You too eventually will perish and you will die and you will go before the Lord in judgment. That is going to happen at some point. You don't get to avoid it. At some point, there will be others who are alive who are talking about the way that you died. And in the moment, we're simply talking about them, but that moment is going to come for you as well. Right? It's, it's hard language. Um, I think about myself in this when I, when I read or look through obituaries or hear someone that's roughly my age has passed away, what, I, what I'm looking for to find some level of comfort or security is I want to make sure what happened to them was unique. Right? That, that, that somehow there's a way that it's, I'm not going to, that's not going to happen to me at my age in my life circumstance. Right? I'm looking for some, like, a, like, did they have some genetic thing? Right? Was it suicide? Like, what, like is there something that can just make, okay, I don't have to worry about that happening to me. And listen, I know it's false comfort and it's false security, but we naturally do that. We look for it. And what Jesus is warning them and is teaching us this morning is this, is we cannot rush to judgment about why or presume why suffering has come into someone's life. We cannot say they're suffering with that disease, with that sickness, with that circumstance, with that tragedy, with that accident, with that stuff, right? Whatever it is, whatever circumstances, because of sin in their life. And there's a tendency for us to say, if there is um, suffering, then we assume guilt. And yet Jesus himself is going to go to Jerusalem and suffer, and it will not be due to his sin. Like He is an example that you can sin and not rightly deserve it. But on the flip side, we can also presume if there's a lack of suffering in my life, then I'm blessed, and God is approving of all that I'm doing. That too is dangerous. Right? That just because there's not something terrible going on in our life, right? That, that God is affirming everything. So what do we begin to kind of glean from this section? The first is this, is that Jesus is teaching them Tomorrow is not promised. Right? These men and women involved in these situations where they were killed while sacrificing were not thinking that their death was going to happen. Those who were working or were in the, 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 just the vicinity of the Tower of Siloam were planning on going home that day. And yet it was terrible, it was sudden, that tomorrow is not promised. And it meant that these folks in both of these scenarios, right? if you want to think of other natural disasters, earthquakes in Haiti, hurricanes, like whatever you want to think of, they didn't have an opportunity for a deathbed confession. There wasn't one last opportunity 
to repent. And he's warning them, don't live your life right, ignoring what God is calling you to do, believing there was always going to be another chance. There's always going to be another opportunity. There's always going to be a t- time for me to see what's coming, and it won't be sudden in my life, and I'll deal with Jesus then. He's like, you may not have that opportunity because tomorrow isn't promised. Life is brief, even if it lasts for 80, 90, 100 years. It is quick. You hear that over and over again. So Ecclesiastes taught us, right? live in light of the fact you're going to die. If you can grasp that and then live backwards, that's going to occur. So how do I live in light of that? Right? And reminded us the race doesn't always go to the fastest. The smartest doesn't always have the most money. The strongest doesn't always win the fight. That life doesn't always go in a fair manner. We have to live in light of the fact that we're going to die. And yet our culture does everything it can to convince us that's not going to happen. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, we just see it succinctly said this way. And just as it is appointed for man or woman, right, for person to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Right? That we know that death comes for everyone, and after death is judgment. And Jesus is warning them listen, set your accounts in order, make things right with God before your death occurs. And you don't know when it's coming. Last week it was you don't know when the Master's returning. When is the return of Christ? You also don't know when your death is coming. So the second thing is this. It's not just that tomorrow isn't promised. It's that we have a need to repent. And if you look, He says all, right? Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He is reminding us that He has come. Remember in Luke 5.32, He says, I didn't come for the well, I came for the sick. To call them to repentance. And He's reminding us that we all have an issue. We all are separated from God. We're all rebels apart from Him. Separated and broken and needing redemption and restoration. We are separated from God, unable to make things right. And so then, when we are separated from God, death is a legitimate enemy. Because in death it brings judgment, because we're standing before God. So we fear death, and we fear the separation that it brings. When he says perish, perish here is the opposite of salvation. Perish is dying apart from Christ, apart from hope, apart from salvation, where you walk into judgment alone. He's like, if you don't repent, you will perish. It's not just that you will die, but you will go before God and you will find judgment and wrath and condemnation. That is your end. It is promised, even if you don't know when it's coming. It is happening. And so, tomorrow isn't promised. There is a need for all to repent. None of us escape that need. And the third thing then is this. Repent. Like, repent. And, 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 and even though we're in a seemingly kind of harsh section of Luke where Jesus is bringing a lot of difficult topics before us. 
Don't forget tender Jesus. Who right when He sees the widow and whose son is being walked out on the funeral pyre, right, like has compassion on her and resurrects her son. The Jesus who sits down at the bed next to the young daughter of Jairus. Hey, sweetheart, wake up. Right? The, the one who is caring and tender. We have to hold both of these things in tension that Jesus is gracious and tender and compassionate and He sees us and He cares for us and He knows us and He is warning us. Repent. Repent. Because you will stand before God someday. Listen, this is Romans chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and His forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Right? Paul is saying, repent. Like God is being kind and gracious to you. Right? So that you will repent and see Him rightly. And if you don't, you are storing up wrath, additional wrath. So what is repentance here? It is turning from trusting in yourself or in any other thing other than God. To trusting in Him. It's seeing your sin rightly as damning, as, separate, as, it, as it separates you, as it's war on God. And it's seeing God rightly as beautiful, as hope, is where all of our trust, our joy, our hope, our affection should be, is in Him. So it's turning from trusting in ourselves, or in the government, or in um, our, our intelligence, or in our giftings, or in our money, or in our health, or in any of these things, and it's trusting Jesus as sufficient. Because what does Satan do? What does Satan lie to us? He says this, there is hope and joy to be found apart from God, and you can find it going apart and away from Him. It's no longer trusting that, but it's believing and trusting Him. Treasuring God rightly. And so Jesus is actually going to continue in this passage. Look he, in verse 6. And He told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And so he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. And so we have this, this parable. And, and what we see in Scripture is this, is that the fig tree is symbolic of, it represents the nation of Israel. Um, I'm going to read one passage to show this. This is Joel chapter 1, verse 7. Um, I'll start in verse 6. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. He's referring to judgment that's come on Israel. And he says, they're my fig tree. 
Right? You can see this in Jeremiah 29.17, Isaiah 34.4, Micah 7.1, Hosea chapter 2, Hosea chapter 9, that the fig tree is symbolic of the nation of Israel. And so the parable that Jesus is teaching here is as a nation, He's saying, Israel, you're on the edge of judgment. You're on the edge of judgment. Like, you are deserving because you are fruitless, and you have been fruitless for a while, right? This, the, the gentleman's come for years now looking for fruit. Fig trees put off fruit every year. And every year, this, this fig tree is not producing fruit. Do you remember what John the Baptist said in Luke chapter 3 as he's coming on the scene and pointing to Jesus? This is Luke 3, 8 and 9. He says, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So John the Baptist sets, like, steps onto the scene saying, Hey, I'm warning you, repent. Right? Judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. Repent. There's hope. Don't think that your blood, your nationality is going to save you. God can raise up the rocks and say, those are my sons. Right? Repent. If you're not bearing fruit and keeping with repentance, you're going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. And here Jesus is saying, there's a, a fruitless fig tree, and it's been fruitless for a while. He, it's an evaluation of the nation's current spiritual status. But they are fruitless. They're not bearing fruit. And so, if they don't produce quickly, judgment is coming. Listen, you're thinking this is a lot of dark, hard news in nine short verses. But I want you to notice some hope here. There's a window of opportunity. The man, when he said to the vine dresser, look, I've done this for three years. I want to cut it down. The vine dresser says, no, 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 sir, one more year. I'm going to loosen the dirt around the tree, and I'm going to put on fertilizer, and I'm going to take care of it, I'm going to give it some extra attention, an extra focus, and listen, if it doesn't produce next year, I'll cut it down. But let's give it one more chance to produce fruit. It's a window of opportunity for repentance. We are seeing the character and the patience of God revealed here in saying, I've come and found you wanting and lacking. But I'm calling you to repentance. I'm calling you to know me and to trust me and to, to settle your accounts with me. Listen, the tree has done nothing to merit extra attention or focus or treatment. Folks, we have done nothing to merit grace or mercy from God. Nothing. We are utterly undeserving. And yet, Jesus stepped into history at the right time to bring restoration and peace and hope and joy to make us right with the Father. We are undeserving, and yet it is offered grace to us because of the merit of Jesus, not of ourselves. We read this passage a couple weeks back, but it's, it's fitting this morning. This is Second Peter Chapter 3, once again. As we th consider the, the character of God. 
verses um, 8 and 9. Don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Saying that is the character, the heart, the hope behind the Lord. And He's calling us to repentance. Saying you don't deserve it. You haven't merited it. You haven't earned it. But I'm giving you opportunity to be restored to right relationship with God. Would you own your sin and debt before me and find that I've made a solution, a path of restoration in Jesus, His life, His death, His resurrection. That you have this window of opportunity. I know a family who, um, when their kids are whining or complaining, um, which happens apparently occasionally, um, the dad will typically in a vehicle will holler out, what do you deserve? And he's taught his family this mantra over the years, and they'll, the kids will all yell back, death! Right? And all the dads in the room are going, that's right, you do. Right? And he goes, what do you get? And they all yell back, everything. Right? He's, he's, he's teaching them this gospel truth. What do we deserve? Nothing. We don't deserve anything. We deserve death. In Christ, what do we get? Everything. We are made sons and daughters of the King. We are brought in and we are told we belong and we have a seat at the table even though we're the crippled beggar, right? Although we're the filthy sinner, like that Jesus makes us right and whole and comes and sets us down and says, this is your seat. Here at the table, you are loved and wanted and you belong. There is hope and joy and peace eternally everlasting for you. I've done what you could not do. I've made a path and I've restored you and I've made it right through my life and through my death and through my resurrection. Right? Like, this is what Jesus is trying to help them understand. And just like a parent could look harsh if, they, if their kid runs out in the street and a parent yells, right, to get the kid's attention, to keep them from danger, Jesus here is warning, saying, don't do this. It's going to lead to you perishing. But repent. Repent. Trust me. And all of this is before you. The kingdom is before you. Church, here's the danger for us as we wrap up this morning. The Western world is discipling and conditioning us to believe that we are owed longevity of life, wealth, ease, and comfort. And that if we don't get it, that God's mad at us. We are not owed those things. We are in a unique era of history where an inordinate amount of people have gained them. And it doesn't mean that God is pleased with them. And it doesn't mean if you don't get them that God is displeased with you. We will all face death and judgment. Are we doing it with Jesus or apart from Him? So it means that this isn't our home. Right? That we're headed home. And this isn't our kingdom. We're headed to our kingdom where there is no more death. There is no more sin. There are no more tears. There are no more sickness or separation or pain or suffering. We have hope and peace and joy. And so, on this side of heaven, on this side of judgment, on this side of God, meeting Him face to face, 
Your suffering is not wasted. It is not for naught. And so, it may be that it's an opportunity for you to repent. As you're reminded, I will one day perish. This isn't fun. I'm going to perish. I'm going to repent. It can be that your suffering is an opportunity for you to reveal that your hope isn't in this world. And when everything has gone wrong and it doesn't look right, and you're going, I'm trusting and hoping in Jesus and He is sufficient, even though this life has been hard and difficult for decades. Jesus is enough for me and He has sustained me in midst of circumstances that others believe that they would crumble under. It could be that He is refining us, helping us let go of things that we have held on to tightly who are attempting to take our attention and energy from Him. And then would you hear Paul say this? This is 2 Corinthians 4. Beginning in verse 7, he says, We have this treasure in jars of clay, right? When you hear jars of clay, you don't think sturdy, right? Something fragile. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed, right? He's saying this life hasn't gone the way you might write it to be or want it to be or long for it to be, but Jesus has been sufficient. He has been enough. So go to verse 16. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, and whether you believe it or not today, regardless of your age, your outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, though it will pass away, right? But the things that are unseen are eternal. He's saying, look at Jesus, not at your circumstances. Look at Him. He will put you on solid ground. He will sustain you. He will comfort you. Your circumstances don't dictate, right? Your suffering doesn't dictate how God feels about you. The cross does. That Jesus has said, I love you. And I've given you a way forward. I've given you a path of restoration with God through my life, my death, and my resurrection. And so this season, and why we went here this morning, is we're celebrating that Jesus has come. He's come with hope and peace and joy and love. And He is returning for His bride, the church. Where our faith will be made sight. Where we will find that all the things of this life, as difficult, as long-lasting as they were, will feel light and momentary compared to the surpassing weight of glory that awaits us. And Jesus will sustain us until then. And so the call upon us this is this. is to repent. Jesus has come on a rescue mission to defeat our enemies, sin and Satan and death, and to take us back to where we belong. In right relationship with the Father. And you want to summarize this passage. God looks and we are found lacking. There's a window of opportunity of mercy. Thus, repent. Trust, turn and trust Jesus. And you will bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That fruit is not 
your salvation. It is not what gets you saved. It is evidence that Jesus is yours and that you are His. We are bearing fruit, keeping with repentance. So this morning, if there are things that are tight in your grip, right, would Jesus, would you just hand them over? Right, that you would repent, even if you know Jesus, you would repent. I've trusted in things other than you. I've hoped in things other than you. God, I don't want that. I want you. Maybe this morning for the first time you're going, I've never repented, I've never trusted, I've never turned. The opportunity is there for you to hear Jesus just say, I want you. You're mine. My life is sufficient for you. My death is sufficient for you. And I have proven that all my promises are true in my resurrection and my ascension. So there will be some men and women in the back of the room. If you need someone to talk to, to pray with, um, to, to talk more about what repentance would look like, they're back there for that. Or for any other thing that you might need to talk to or pray about. Um, the band's going to come back up and we're going to sing to our King. Asking for our affection to be stirred that the things of this world would begin to fade away and would begin to fall off and that we would see more clearly the kingdom that we are headed to, the home that we are headed to, and that Jesus is sufficient to get us there. Let's pray. Father, would you remove the scales from our eyes? God, would you take away stony, hard, cold hearts of sin that have trusted in anything and everything but you? God, would we no longer believe the lie that there is joy or that there is pleasure that's eternal and lasting apart from you? God, that we would find our cup overflowing if we walk with you. And that you are more than enough and you will sustain us. God, would we see a hard passage like this and in the end walk away going, Jesus is beautiful. Thank you for unmerited mercy and grace. Thank you for opportunity to repent, to know you. God, would you move in us now to repent where necessary, to trust and to delight in you. In Jesus' name, amen.